0: I was in a coma for six weeks while the doctors told my wife I was gonna die. When I woke up, she told me the most fantastic story. My team kept running the business without me. Freelancers reached out to my team and said, we will do whatever it takes as long as Craig's in the hospital. I consider that the greatest accomplishment in my career. My name is Craig Andrews and this is the Leaders and Legacies podcast where we talk to leaders creating an impact beyond themselves. At the end of today's interview, I'll tell you how you can be the next leader featured on this show. All right, I want to welcome Greg Offner. He is known as a globally recognized expert on performance, the founder and CEO of of Global Performance Institute and an award-winning international keynote speaker and event MC. Greg also spent 15 years as an internationally renowned dueling piano bar performer, uh, performing professionally on five of the seven continents. As the creator of the Tip Jar Culture, Greg helps transform the employee experience, or as he likes to say, help take the irk, out of work, so that organizations and their people can consistently deliver more profitable results. His clients include organizations and associations of all sectors and sizes, from Fortune 100 corporations to local chapters of associations. Through keynotes, workshops, and multi-day retreats, Greg, uh, Greg's content touches on topics like engage, engagement, retention, purposeful performance, leadership, skill acquisition, and disruption. Greg, welcome to Leaders and Legacies.
1: Big thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. So um, the, the, dueling pianos, uh, that yeah. just,
1: what was that? That sounds awesome. It, it was. And it always, it's funny. Whenever uh, I hear someone talk about it, it's it's a mouthful, you know, dueling piano performers, the syllables don't really work. So it's funny. Everybody gets a smile out of that, but it was the best uh, job I've ever had. It, it didn't feel like a job. I got to entertain people all over the world. I got to learn a lot about music in the process because, you know, different parts of the world have different songs that they want to sing along to. And not all of them are Billy Joel or Elton John, you know, the kind of music that that got me excited to be a piano bar performer in the first place. But it's a really unique environment. I got to spend fifteen years watching how to engage human beings. You know, these people would come in for all different reasons. Some folks were piano bar uh, diehards. They just loved they're they the type of person that would travel. And, you know, like you and I would look for a hotel room or a place to rent a car. They're looking for the local piano bar in the city that they're traveling to, right? So you'd yeah. have those, you'd have the bachelor, bachelorette parties, the corporate parties who are sort of, you know, maybe it's their first time there. Maybe it's a, a forced uh, company outing or something like that. So you have to navigate that contingent. And then there were people we'd call sleepers. And those were generally the guests of somebody else, right? So if you were piano bar diehard and you brought a friend along with you who was maybe not so sure what this experience would entail, and they were kind of cross-armed and maybe very stoic or or poker-faced and just trying to figure out where they fit into the experience, we, we'd call them our sleepers. And it was our job to figure out how to wake them up and get them excited about it. So I learned a lot in those 15 years, uh, traveled the world and, and got paid to do it. So it was pretty
0: cool. You know, and- as you're talking about that, think about the skills. You know, you're on stage night after night, meeting complete strangers and trying to engage them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, you want to talk about a crucible of instruction on, you know, human engagement. That, I just can't imagine how powerful that was. Yeah.
1: And and I think... uh Sometimes it was made a little bit simpler because there was a drink or two involved. So people were a bit looser and they were sort of more open and honest. And sometimes it was made more difficult when there were several drinks involved and you're trying to herd cats and figure out how to get everybody to, you know, do what you want them to do as an audience, which is participate. When everybody's participating, the night not only goes quickly, it goes wonderfully. Because what we're really trying to do is, is create this unpaid choir out in the audience. And something happens to the human body when we sing, which is one of the things that I think makes piano bars so appealing in terms of an audience experience. There was a study done that talked about uh, longevity in different populations. And there is something about participating in choral activities, the, the vibration, much like how a cat purrs, and that actually helps it uh, recuperate. When we sing, our body and our bones vibrate in a very interesting way. And so there's something about the physical act and the communal act of singing that people left at the end of the night of at a piano bar. They, they all left smiling. It, the very I can probably count on one hand how many times we had a customer leave that was not smiling.
0: I, I generally I, that was
1: because they had way too much to drink. <laughs>
0: yeah, fair enough. No, I can see that. Um, you know, so unfortunately for me, you know, two years ago I had COVID pneumonia, and when I sing, I get hypoxic and dizzy. And uh so different effect on me but that's hopefully getting better over time. Yeah. Yeah, we'd probably give you a tambourine. I mean,
1: we want you to enjoy the fun, but we certainly don't want to have to send you out in in, in a stretcher. So yeah, we we'd find a way though,
0: Craig. We get you participating. Well, and 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 that's so sort of key. I mean, that I mean, that comes back to that skill that you've developed on stage. You find a way to get everybody to participate in what you're mm-hmm. doing. I mean, that that just seems like an amazing skill. That seems like a great skill for the workplace.
1: It it is. And and just like it needs to be taught in the workplace, it needed to be taught to me when I first started. Um, I didn't start in dueling piano bars. I started in solo piano bars. And to the casual listener, they may be going, what the hell is the difference? Well, a solo piano bar is a individual or a solo piano performer, so just one piano. And most often it's a type of uh, cabaret type experience where the the audience are generally asking for particular songs to be played. They're probably singing along. Um, and not really every song is intended to get the whole bar singing together. You're, you're kind of, for some, background entertainment. And for others, you're the reason they came to the bar to, to, to see the show. Dueling Pianos is a show. It is a show that the audience participates in. So there are a lot of off-the-cuff improv moments, but there's a lot of heavily choreographed bits that go on on stage. So there's a different skill set needed to just be a good enough musician to play at a piano bar than there is to be a performer that can work inside of a dueling piano show. What I learned when I started out in the solo piano bars was what you just brought up that the ability to engage an audience is actually a learned skill. So I thought that I was just this great musician and that I should play songs and people should want to engage with it. Cause I was so damn great. And I was so surprised Craig that a couple nights at the piano bar, nobody cared that I was there. It was like, they weren't even paying attention. And the owner of one of these bars came over to me and he said, Hey man, what, like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing what you pay me to do. I'm, playing songs at the piano he goes yeah but nobody's interacting people aren't staying i said well that i was pretty cheeky when i was a kid that sounds like a you problem like my (laughs) job is to play the right and he was just i mean that set him off but thankfully (laughs) thankfully he had this very wise sort of teacherly way about him because he could have just thrown my ass out the door he said look yes i'm paying you to be here and play the piano, he said, but what I really want you to do is to create an experience for my customers that makes them buy another drink, that makes them want to stay longer, that gets them excited about coming back here because they can buy a beer anywhere. And frankly, there's lots of piano players that I could put behind that chair. So what your job really is, is to get the audience involved in some way in this performance. And the way that you do that is by playing the piano. And that was a huge mindset shift for me. Yeah. And so I said, well, how, like, how? Again, could have thrown my ass out the door, but he had this teacherly way about him. So he said, okay, you take breaks every 45 minutes. Why not, instead of going out back and smoking a cigarette and having a drink and just like, you know, doing whatever you're doing back there, why not go talk to the audience? Introduce yourself. Ask how you could make this performance an 11 out of 10 for them. What would they like to hear? I was a bit skeptical, but I just went along because I really wanted to be a piano bar performer. And that changed everything. The ability to go out and interact with the audience was something I needed to be given permission to do because I didn't think that's what I was supposed to do. I thought I was supposed to sit behind the piano, kind of know your role, stay in your lane and play the, play the, the damn instrument. He said, no, 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 no. The instrument is just how we accomplish what I really want you to do. And that's get them engaged. And then you take that type of training into the world of dueling pianos. And now you're learning the show. You've got this belief that I'm not just there to perform and do the bits. I'm there to get you involved in the bits too. And all of a sudden things started to click for me. I started to have a lot of fun at the dueling piano show. Because I actually tried dueling pianos too early in my career. Not only was I terrible at it, I hated it. It yeah. was such an uncomfortable experience because I didn't know what to do. I hadn't practiced enough at the act and I, I was bad. And so as a as a result, the audience didn't have the best time because I wasn't creating the environment that engaged them. And that's what, if we take that the metaphor into the workplace, that's what leaders are given their authority to do. I may have a piano at the piano bar, but at work, you've got a title. If you've got a title, that's not a reward for some amazing performance you did last quarter or last year or earlier in your career, that title is a tool for you to help the people below you, your subordinates, do their job better. And I think that's a missing element in in leadership development today. I think that some folks set their sights on a title and you should, you should have goals. Like wanting a promotion is not a bad thing, but understand that that is not a reflection of how good you are, it's a reflection of how good you could make the people below you if you use that title to create impact, not just for you, but for them and for the organization by extension.
0: Well, and I would take that even further to say that everybody in the organization, their job is not to do whatever their job is. Their job is to delight the customer. Whatever they're doing is a means to the end to delight, and it's what you're, it's what this uh, bar owner was telling you, you know, you're not here to play music. You're here to make people want to be here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and I, and I, I agree with you. And I want to add a caveat that I think the external versus the internal customer is a discussion that needs to be had more inside organizations. I I spoke for a real estate organization a couple months back and I spoke to all of their leaders, big national company. I think that, you know, a couple hundred people in the room, this is all their senior leadership. Excuse me. And on the table, they had this card and it said something like, you know, we create the the communities that people are proud to call home or something like that. Right. And I, I said to this room of leaders, I said, I saw that card and respectfully, I don't think that's what you do. I actually don't think that your job is to create the communities that people want to call home. Your job is to create the people who run the communities that people want to call home. And so this is what I mean when I say the minute you get that title at work. You should spend less of your focus on the external customer and more of your focus on the internal customer, the customer of the, the job design, which is your employee. Because the, the, the higher up the ladder you get, the more removed you are from what really happens out in the field, what really happens with your customer. But if you take care of that internal customer, the, the line level, that frontline employee, they know best how to take care of the external customer. And so the leader's job is to, one, listen to the feedback coming from the front line and implement it and listen to the obstacles the front line is telling you they run into and use your authority to remove them. And if that circle of, of productivity started to function more efficiently for organizations, you'd not only see engagement and retention skyrocket, but you'd see productivity and profitability to uh, uh, do the same. You know, that's
0: so incredibly insightful. and. I, you know, I, and I think it's easy to miss. I think it's easy to get into your job and start getting focused on your task list, your daily task list, and to miss that bigger picture that you're describing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, and I, I, I know because it happened to me. I mean, I not only study this and I work with organizations and leaders who we, we have a dialogue about this very issue all the time. It happened to me firsthand. I got into I got into my first leadership role and all of a sudden I got deluged with reports and spreadsheets and matrices and all these conference calls that I had to do. And it, it took my eye off what the real focus was removing obstacles for the people in the field. That yeah. that was really my
0: job. Wow. That's that's so cool. And you know, the, no kidding, about an hour ago, I was commenting on somebody's LinkedIn post and I put in a Steve Jobs quote. And he said, "The musicians play the instruments. I play the orchestra. Hmm. And that sounds like what you're talking about,
1: yeah, yeah, there's definitely a correlate and and to sort of stick with that metaphor, your employees are kind of your audience in a way. if you're a leader. you know, the minute you are in the building, you're on stage that is that is your stage. So you're on. That's why leaders are more highly compensated. It's not because you're better. When you become a leader, you're actually worse at doing the job you used to do because you don't do it every day. And so you're out of touch with reality. you kind of remember the way it was, you know, Mm -hmm. like when my grandparents told me they used to walk to school uphill both ways in the snow. Like maybe that's how you remember it, but you're a little far removed from your elementary school days, grandpa, right? So the challenge becomes understanding what your audience wants. When leaders understand what their internal audience wants, they can deliver the type of performance that engages, that's worthy of engagement, because that's really what leaders are tasked to do, is to help create a work environment, a job design, the way that the job gets done for their subordinates, that makes them want to come back and do it again tomorrow, that gets them excited about the outcome of what they're doing. Because imagine going to an orchestral performance and you see the conductor step up, Onto the conductor's podium, lifts the baton. All of the orchestra's instruments come up. The, and the the, he, the, the the conductor gives the downbeat. And you see the tuba player, cheeks puffed, blowing into that tuba hard. You, and the timpani player has those sticks, you know, the big drums in the back. And he's wailing on that timpani. And you don't hear a sound. In the audience, you're looking at your your fellow seatmates. And they, they're going, what the hell is going on, Craig? Where Where's the sound? That wouldn't be a very fulfilling performance to take part in, but what happens in so many organizations, especially the bigger they get is that the sound, the actual, so what of showing up to work every day, like I showed up today. So what, what happened? What, what is different about the world? Because I came in today to do this job, the further employees are from that. So what the easier it is for them to disengage. And so as a leader, you've constantly got to be reminding and showing the employee the so what you've got to let them hear the performance. That's really, I mean, I love you brought up the orchestra example, because that's really
0: important. Yeah. So how do you help companies do this? So you, you do, you know, first off, tell everybody what you do, how you engage with companies and how you help them solve these problems. Well, It's a big, it's a
1: big undertaking, right? So I know we can make it really simple to hear right now to tell them how I do that. It starts with bringing their attention to the problem because most organizations are on a quest to create more engagement. And so they want to make, we want to make the workplace more enjoyable. How do we get people to want to be here more? Well, enjoyable and effective are two separate things. Mm -hmm. Like a music festival is really enjoyable I don't know, it, it's not really profitable for me to show up and drink beers and listen to bands all day. I mean, maybe it is for somebody. But so if you're creating an environment, a work environment that's full of foosball tables and kegerators and pizza Mondays and wear jeans on Thursdays and this and that, like, yeah, that that's fun. I'm sure people love to do it. But is that actually helping you accomplish the so what of your business, getting getting the work done? So what I've learned people really want is to have a voice in the process. And they want the outcome to be visible. So how do we raise their voice and how to create more visibility to what happens when they do the work? You know, Zig Ziglar, one of my favorite motivational speakers, used to have a bit. And he talked about how some salespeople that he would run into, they weren't necessarily convinced that their job was really worthwhile. They kind of felt like their whole job was just to take advantage of somebody so that their company makes a profit. And Zig said, my response to them would be, do you understand that when you make a sale, a truck driver has the opportunity to deliver that product? To get that product onto the truck, someone had to work in a warehouse. To get that product into the warehouse, several people had to work in manufacturing. To get that manufacturing plant set up, several people had to build that facility. Some people had to be trained to be able to build that facility. And the list that Zig you know, does in his amazing way goes on and on and on. And you realize, wow, one sale facilitates so many other jobs. But we don't see that. We don't necessarily go that deep in our thinking about what is the chain reaction of my activity today. And as a leader, especially in, in the world we live in today where everything is so fast and it feels like data is coming at us so quickly that it's easy to just forget or miss the important parts. As a leader, it's your job to slow that down and regularly remind your people of the sound their performance makes, of the impact that their work creates for the organization, for the customers, for the community. When leaders do that, it's no longer a job. It, It becomes closer to a calling, something you get to do in the world, not that you have to do today. And then the other part of that conversation having a voice in the process is what I talked about earlier. The front line know what's happening out in the field. And yet their voice rarely reaches the rooms where the decisions are actually made. And so leaders should be facilitating that conversation. We do that at the piano bar with something called a request slip. So these would be all over the bar and there would be pens or pencils. And this is how we got the ideas for songs from the audience because that's our front line from the audience into the place where the decisions made on top of the piano, where myself and my other colleague, my other piano playing colleague, we could look and say, Oh man, that is a great idea. I never would have thought to play that song, play pour some sugar on me right now. It's a great, yeah, let's play that request. And the upside is something else came up with this request at the piano bar. It's right? something green and presidential. Now, I'm talking about money, Craig, right? We would yeah. get money, discretionary incentive, for discretionary effort. When I did that thing you asked me to do, I got paid a little extra. And so when the organization reaps a benefit from employee activity or employee ideas and initiatives, there's got to be a mechanism for that employee to earn a little bit more. Why yeah. are why are bonuses reserved for executives? Why are why is commission only reserved for salespeople? It's gonna take some creative thinking. But managers and leaders that spend time to figure out how can I incentivize somebody in accounting, somebody in the warehouse, somebody at front desk at reception, how can I incentivize them to do a better job, not just work a couple more hours to change the the numbers in their paycheck, work better, not longer. That's what people want an opportunity to do. And the organizations that help create ways for employees to do that, they start to become what I call a tip jar culture a place where performance comes from the people who are inspired, rewarded, excited to
0: be there. And that, that's, you know, when you lay that out, it's it's so obvious. And, you know, I think a lot of times we miss the, you know, we miss the obvious, but that's, I mean, that's the job of people like you is to kind of reacquaint us with the obvious so we can see the things hidden in plain sight. Uh, let me ask you, let me pivot a little bit and ask you about a time where you feel like your leadership was put to the test. It was a white knuckled moment and you, um, you had a tough decision to make. You weren't sure how it was going to work out. Can you think of a situation like that? When I first took a leadership role,
1: um, I was inundated, like I mentioned earlier with spreadsheets and numbers and all these reports and things. And, um, our sales reps were compensated for two types of sales. One was a recurring sale and the other was a transaction. The transaction, it turned out, was more profitable for the organization, but the recurring sale was more profitable for the rep. It also happened to be more profitable for my comp plan and my boss's comp plan. And I wound up Managing someone out. I hope you didn't expect this to be a success story because I'm going to tell you this is a a failure that I learned. (laughs) I wound up managing someone out who created quite a bit of revenue, the transactional revenue for our office. And the general manager of our office was comped on profitability. So recurring revenue is great. Transactional revenue is great so long as it's profitable revenue. This guy that I managed out was creating a lot of profitability for the organization. And so almost within the first six months of me taking my first management role, I created an enemy with my general manager because I cost him all this profitable revenue, but I was looking to replace somebody in the team that would make my recurring revenue stream look better. So I unintentionally slighted my general manager at the expense of my performance. And here's what I learned about that. I learned that one of the greatest dangers to an organization is when the different levels compensation and incentives what how this guy wins versus how that in, how this person wins versus how that person wins when those are misaligned. Yeah. The harmonization of interests of an organization is critical. It's you know to use an overused saying it's like if you got three people in a boat and one of them's rowing in the other direction. And so often I've learned comp plans are designed that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and they're tough, you know. I I had a professor say, uh, every single uh, compensation plan is broken. Your job is to find the one that's the least broken for for your organization. But you know, what I heard you saying in that was that the comp plan was not aligned with the best interest of the company, and 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 so you create things like that. You uh, and And I would take it even a step further in terms of leadership, when you reward people for getting results, but getting them the the wrong way, you're creating a compensation plan that's eventually going to destroy your organization. Certainly. Wow. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. That's, That's, you know, Henry Ford said the, what was it, the only... Uh, the only mistake is the one we don't learn from. And it sounds like you definitely learn from that. And I think it's a valuable lesson for the listeners uh, t- to think about that. And especially the business owners as they're setting up compensation plans. It's it's hard and you have to think through these things. Um and I, you know, I personally hate it when I see people create the wrong type of competition within an organization. Mm. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, we've kind of run out of time. Uh, This has been a great conversation. Um, I'd love to hear more. But first off, you have a book coming out called The uh, The Tip Jar Culture, right? Yeah. Yeah. There
1: was constantly people after programs asking me, Greg, how do we get your book? And I didn't have the heart to tell them I didn't have one. So I said, oh, it'll be coming soon. Don't you worry. And so after enough people asked, I said, well, geez, I guess I really ought to write a book. And what I've learned in the process of writing this book is that I can get people excited about the idea of creating a tip jar culture on stage but you know much like in our you know brief time here today I can't go into all the nitty gritty there's a lot of behavioral psychology behind this there's a lot of economics behind this there's a lot of theories that aren't that aren't my creation it's stuff that's from 100 120 years ago but synthesizing all of them together in one idea is really what I've had the pleasure and the privilege to be able to do in this book. And so the keynote gets somebody excited about the idea the book takes it deeper. Um, it's almost a how-to. And so that'll be coming out in early 2024. And I'm super excited to share it with people. If, if you want to learn more, if you want to see an advanced chapter, you can go to my website, gregoryoffner.com. And all the way down at the bottom, there's a little form you fill out, you know, send me a chapter and boom, I'll send you a chapter. And then you'll be one of the first to know when it's available. The final book is available to purchase.
0: That that's a, that's a generous gift. And I hope people do that. I, I know I will. Uh, so they can reach you through your website, Greg, GregoryOffner.com. Yep. Is there, um, another way for folks to reach you? How, you know, what's, what's your preferred way for folks to reach out to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm on, I'm on all the major socials just as a, uh, uh, a point of, I think, this industry. So, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, I'm not on Facebook so much anymore, but yeah. whatever. You can reach out to me at any of those places. Gregory Offner Jr. Um, my email's on my website, so you can reach me there. I'm, I'm a, again, by virtue of this profession, I'm a pretty accessible guy. So if somebody has some feedback or a question, you know, I'd love to hear from you. And you do
0: keynotes and what have you for companies. You do basically to get folks energized, get people rethinking about the, the the approaching things the way that we've talked about here.
1: Yeah, that's the the way that I deliver this message is through a keynote that infuses the message with music. You know, we talk about something in, in psychology called the forgetting curve, which is when you learn something, you, you, you start forgetting at the minute you stop using it, which is why earlier I said, as you get promoted into higher positions, you become worse at the job you used to be great at because you don't do it regularly. So you start forgetting what it was really like. And you have this rose colored rear uh, rearview mirror view of, of what you did um, to try to overcome that. One of the things you can do in instructional design is layer in the different senses. So create a multi-sensory experience. So rather than just stand up there and speak on a platform for 45 or 60 minutes, I, when I'm able to, I bring a piano with me or an electronic keyboard and we we set it all up. So it looks like a piano on stage And we use musical elements very strategically. The whole thing is very calculated in terms of getting someone to remember the music. Because each time I make a point, there's a song or an activity that's anchoring that point to another sense. So my hope is down the road, somebody hears a particular song and they go, oh man, I remember this dude performed that song. And I remember he was also talking about such and such as we were doing that. So when organizations bring me into keynote, they get a much better ROI than just bringing in a standard speaker. Uh, Plus it's a heck of a lot of
0: fun too. It it is. And and, you know, I really want to reinforce what you just said there. A number of years ago, I went back and watched the closing arguments in the OJ Simpson trial and everybody thinks that Johnny Cochran's closing arguments were, you know, five or 10 minutes. No, they, they were hours, absolutely hours. And the interesting thing, if you watch that, you will see that the things that he wanted the jury to remember, he put in meter, he put in meter and you'd see him go through a whole bunch of dry and boring things that I guess he had to put in there in case they, you know, as a basis for appeal, if they lost the case, Mm -hmm. but anything he wanted the jury to remember, he put in meter. It was like he was singing it to the jury. And what you're saying is when you're doing a keynote, you're stimulating those senses. You're doing that because it will be more memorable and more, and they'll, they'll get more out of it. That's precisely right. Well, Gregory, this has been awesome. I appreciate you being on Leaders and Legacies. I hope people reach out to you. I think you have something special.
1: Thanks, Craig. I really appreciate the opportunity to be
0: here and chat with you for, but it was great. This is Craig Andrews. I want to thank you for listening to the Leaders and Legacies podcast. We're looking for leaders to share how they're making an impact beyond themselves. If that's you, please go to allies for Me dot com slash guest and sign up there if you got something out of this interview we would love you to share this episode on social media just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials if you know someone who would be a great guest tag them on social media and let them know about the show including the hashtag leaders and legacies i love seeing your posts and suggestions we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss anything, please go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to my team. If you want to know more, please go to alliesforme.com uh, or follow me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.